This episode of Wasteland may contain mature themes, profanity, and descriptions of sex, graphic violence, and criminal activity. Listener discretion is advised. It was getting close to midnight on Saturday, July 11th, 2011, when cars began pulling up and parking haphazardly in front of 371 North Granger Avenue. This quaint single-family home set back from the street on a neatly clipped lawn was indistinguishable from the other houses that lined this quiet suburban Port St. Lucie street. And it was where 17-year-old Tyler Hadley resided with his parents Blake and Mary Jo and his brother Ryan. The Ryan had recently left for college. Blake and Mary Jo were in Orlando for the night, and so, like most teens his age when they have the house to themselves, Tyler was taking advantage of his parents' absence and throwing a huge party. And everyone was invited. Inside the Hadley home was a melting pot of all the different high school cliques, a mix that usually has the potential to be quite caustic. But the quote-unquote jocks and the brains and the weirdos had all been miraculously brought together by their gracious host, who himself had always been a bit of an outsider at school. Tyler was tall, gaunt, and to put it mildly, socially awkward. He didn't make much of a positive impression at school. He rarely spoke, and he ran with a group of delinquent pot and pill heads, the type of kids who rarely have the wherewithal to even show up to class. Earlier in the day, Tyler had posted on his Facebook page that he would be throwing a party. Now, as the event moved into full swing, word of the gathering continued to spread on social media. Soon, there were nearly a hundred teenagers in the Hadley home, drinking, smoking weed, popping pills, and generally destroying the place. Strangely, Tyler didn't seem all that concerned with the lack of respect his guests had for the house. As he circulated around the party, the one thing he seemed worried about was anyone making noise outside. He didn't want his neighbors calling the cops. Just stay in the house, he said, a nervous look on his face. You can smoke inside, I don't care. A group of partiers had gathered on the front porch and Tyler angrily demanded they go back inside the house. One of Tyler's friends, a young man named Mark Andrews, decided to leave around this time, but Tyler stopped him, asking to have a word in private. So Mark obliged him. As the party raged around them, Tyler told Mark he was, quote, freaking out. When Mark asked him why, Tyler responded, I killed somebody. I was at a party with uh, one of my buddies, and it was at his house. And I'm at the party, and... Tyler Hadley had a history of troublesome behavior that seemed to start when he entered high school. Most teenagers experience a shift in personality during this formative time, but Tyler's was more drastic than expected. He became unpredictable and troubled, self-medicating with alcohol and marijuana. 
In his early teens, Tyler and his friends set a couch on fire in the local River Park Wildlife Preserve, a prank that resulted in a small forest fire. The Port St. Lucie Fire Department was thankfully able to extinguish the blaze and the young arsonists were let off with a warning. But Tyler's deviance continued. He got himself arrested first for a petty burglary, then for aggravated battery, the latter of which saw him sitting in the St. Lucie County Jail for one week, which was followed by house arrest for two weeks. About a month after getting off house arrest, Tyler came home from a party abysmally drunk. His mother, Mary Jo, decided to utilize Florida's Baker Act, a law which allows a parent to involuntarily commit their child if they are deemed a danger to themselves or others. Mary Jo placed Tyler in New Horizons, a local mental health facility. It was the desperate move of a mother who didn't know what to do with her youngest son other than watch him slide down the dark and slippery slope of alcoholism and drug addiction, which, in a place like Port St. Lucie, is not all that uncommon. Port St. Lucie is located about 40 miles north of West Palm Beach. It's considered a part of Florida's Treasure Coast, so named for the loss of the Spanish treasure fleet during a 1715 hurricane and the later discovery of that treasure. The area is comprised of Martin, St. Lucie, and Indian River counties. The region just below the Treasure Coast, which contains the cities of Miami, Fort Lauderdale, and West Palm Beach, is known as the Gold Coast, which may seem redundant. However, if one considers the nature of both areas, there is a stark contrast. The Gold Coast is so named for the glamour and wealth that is rightly associated with the Miami-Fort Lauderdale area. But the Treasure Coast, which contains sleepy Florida towns like Stewart, Sebring, Sebastian, and Port St. Lucie, earned its name from something found in the wake of a tragedy, something dredged up from the ocean floor. The Miami area is vibrant, teeming with life and excess, but many of the towns that comprise the Treasure Coast provide the very best example of why this podcast is named Wasteland, in that they lack any real culture or life. Of course, the same could be said of my hometown and the surrounding areas of Volusia County. Daytona Beach is not a hotbed of excitement by any stretch unless our vapid tourism industry is considered. But there is life here, stunted and surface level though it may be. I've been to many of the towns on the Treasure Coast. As a touring musician in several subpar bands throughout the 2000s, the only shows we were able to book were in the towns of Stewart, Sebring, and Port St. Lucie, and we were always well received. But it wasn't due to the music we made. It was because the kids in Port St. Lucie had nothing better to do. Port St. Lucie was developed originally by three brothers from Jacksonville, Florida, Elliot, Robert, and Frank Mackle. They founded the General Development Corporation, and in 1958 purchased over 40,000 acres on which to create their planned community. The Mackle brothers were in the business of selling the Floridian Dream to anyone who would buy it, and with a price tag of $10 down and $10 a month for an 80 by 125 foot lot, they had a lot of buyers. Of course, with total prices ranging from $9,000 to $15,000, those $10 payments would follow the northern retirees who made Port St. Lucie their home for the rest of their lives. Like most Florida cities on the East Coast, Port St. Lucie sprawled west toward Interstate 95 throughout the latter half of the 20th century. 
The population eventually reached over 150,000 people by 2007, but this was a community designed to entice retired New Englanders unwilling to go through another brutal winter. It wasn't created with teenagers in mind. Really, the only thing Port St. Lucie is known for is being the site of the New York Mets spring training camp, but by the mid-2000s, Port St. Lucie was famous for something else. Marijuana grow houses. In May of 2008, Port St. Lucie police received a report of a man wielding a machete chasing another man down southeast Glenwood Drive. Though the two men were never apprehended, a home with a shattered sliding glass door was found in the immediate area. And inside that home was so much marijuana that it could be smelled from the street. Evidence collected at that house, as well as tips provided by witnesses, led the Port St. Lucie police to eventually bust 69 pothouses and arrest 77 suspects. Echoing the days of the cocaine cowboys, it seems that Cuban immigrants were being recruited in places like Miami and the Northeast United States to move to Port St. Lucie and live in these grow houses. A relocation package was provided to interested parties, the home, money, even vehicles, just so long as the new resident would grow, maintain, and guard the marijuana crop for at least two years. And herein lies the tragedy of so many small Florida towns. People are enticed by the sun and the water, though in the case of Port St. Lucie, the name is a misnomer, as there is no port, nor access to the beach. But there is no life to be had simply cooking away under the sun. Florida is regarded as a vacation destination, but vacations aren't supposed to be permanent. And for those of us who were born here, we feel drawn elsewhere, away from the stagnation, away from the heat, away from the sand and the water. And sometimes people don't make it out, and the aberrant behavior that results can have dire consequences. Michael Mandel was Tyler Hadley's best friend. The two had known each other since they were in elementary school. They had the type of friendship that resulted in their families growing close as well. So, being a guest in Tyler's house was natural for Michael. But on the night of July 16th, as Tyler's impromptu party raged all around him, Michael was gripped by a profound unease. In a word, he was terrified. Michael looked at the photo he had taken on his phone just a few minutes before. It was a selfie with Tyler. Despite the raucousness of the party, their faces were stern, drawn. Neither looked particularly happy to be in the picture. A look of deep sadness creased Tyler's features as he attempted a festive pose, holding up a clear plastic orange cup. Michael himself was slightly out of frame, a look of grim determination on his face. He knew what he had to do. It was now just a matter of doing it, no matter how much it frightened him. Michael also knew that from the moment Tyler asked him to step outside so they could talk, things were never going to be the same for either of them. They couldn't be. Not after what Tyler had confessed to. It happened only a few hours prior to the party, and it had happened quickly. It was all finally coming to a head. Tyler's anger over being Baker acted, the house arrest, the resentment he believed his parents held toward him, perhaps even the crushing nothing that was the town he seemed destined to live in for the rest of his life. Tyler felt he couldn't contain himself anymore. 
Quietly, he entered his parents' bedroom, finding his mother, Mary Jo, at work on the family computer. He stood behind her for a few minutes, staring, waiting for her to notice him. Eventually, Mary Jo began to turn around, and that was when Tyler raised the claw hammer he was holding and brought it down on his mother's head. Mary Jo had enough time to ask one last thing of her wayward son, a question he was probably used to hearing at this point. She screamed, Why? Tyler had no answer for his mother, and as he continued swinging the hammer down, 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 Mary Jo continued to ask him the same question over and over. Tyler's father, Blake, was home, and upon hearing his wife's screams, he quickly burst into the bedroom. The scene was shocking, enough so that it took Blake a few moments to truly comprehend what he was seeing. He locked eyes with his son, who was streaked in blood, clutching a bloody hammer. Blake now asked Tyler the same question as his wife. Why? In any other circumstance, the repeated question with no forthcoming answer might have struck both father and son as funny. But the violence seemed to have dislodged an answer loose in Tyler. As he now turned his deadly attention to his father, he shouted back, Why the fuck not? When he was finished, Tyler knew he had a dilemma on his hands. He had to do something with the bodies. Tyler began by mopping up the blood, which was no easy task considering his weapon of choice. Then Tyler placed his parents' corpses side by side, face down on the bedroom floor, the murder weapon between them. He then proceeded to cover the bodies in the bloodied sheets and pillowcases from their bed, as well as various household items broken during the struggle, including a coffee table. He also placed the bloody mop on the pile, and then he left his parents' bedroom, shutting the door and the deed behind him. Tyler took a shower and stared at himself in the mirror. He later said that he caught himself laughing at his reflection, though the three pills of ecstasy he had taken prior to the murders might have had some part in that. Michael didn't believe Tyler at first. The two had convened their discussion outside of the party by the stop sign at the end of Granger Street. I killed my parents, Tyler said. Michael thought Tyler was just trying to trick him, but he was more inclined to believe him when Tyler pointed out that his parents' cars were still in the driveway. Back inside, still wanting his friend to believe him, Tyler directed Michael to look inside the garage. Michael did but quickly shut the door when he saw a bloody shoe print on the floor. Tyler had decided to come clean beyond a shadow of a doubt, so he took Michael to his parents' bedroom. Amid the smoke, the loud music, the conversation and laughter, Michael peeked inside the bedroom. He saw the bloodied pile. He also saw Blake's legs sticking out from under it. Surprisingly, Michael didn't immediately leave the party. He stayed for just under another hour, which is when he snapped a selfie with Tyler. Some might wonder at Michael's reluctance to leave a crime scene, but as he later put it, if you were in my shoes and that guy was your best friend, you wouldn't want to leave right away. I know how heinous and sick this is, what he did, but you wouldn't have run away because you're comfortable with this guy. You don't see him as a killer. 
Around 4.30 a.m., Tyler's house was once again empty, save for himself, the debris from the party, and the grisly secret he had confined to his parents' bedroom. As he made himself a sandwich, he made another Facebook post. Party at my house again. Hit me up. But Michael Mandel had phoned the Crime Stoppers hotline after leaving Tyler's, and the police were already outside. Tyler surrendered without incident, though the strangeness of the crime scene did not escape the responding officers. Between the time that the party had ended and his arrest, Tyler had piled nearly every piece of movable furniture from the rest of the house into his parents' bedroom. He threw lamps, mirrors, bedding, piles of paper, anything he could get his hands on, into the room. It was as if he thought he could put everything behind the bedroom door and shut it away forever, the evidence of the murders and the party. Tyler wanted to forget. He just wanted it all to go away. On March 20th, 2014, just under three years after Tyler had murdered his parents, he was sentenced to two life terms, one for each killing. However, since he was just three months shy of his 18th birthday at the time of the crimes, in 2016, Tyler's double life sentence was overturned. Florida's 4th District Court of Appeals ruled that the judge in Tyler's case, quote, did not consider the correct alternative to a life sentence. This upset was due to the Supreme Court issuing a ruling in 2012 that banned mandatory life prison terms for teens convicted of murder. Tyler is still serving his time at Okeechobee Correctional Center. A new sentencing date has not been set. As he continues to wait for that new sentence, Tyler Hadley spends his days reading Harry Potter books, writing letters, and he has even earned his GED and completed the SAT. Surprisingly, he has contemplated becoming a priest after attending counseling with a prison chaplain. During the sentencing phase for his initial trial, Tyler apologized to his extended family and friends for his actions. But despite his newfound hope for a second chance at life, It doesn't appear that he will be welcomed back into the arms of his loved ones anytime soon. Without turning to face his family, Tyler Hadley apologized for killing his parents, Blake and Mary Jo, but says he can't explain why. I still don't understand myself and the reasons for my atrocious actions. I really don't know. Contrary to what anyone else may tell you, I'm telling you the truth. For me to try and explain would be like making excuses, and there is no excuse. That's my brother there. We loved him very, very much. After the hearing, Tyler's uncle, Mike Hadley, said this experience was like a third funeral for him. We'll never forget. We'll live with this for the rest of our life. He gave us a life sentence. This episode of Wasteland was researched, written, produced, recorded, edited, and in some areas, scored by me, Michael Paul Anthony. If you'd like to contact the show, the email address is wastelandpodfl at gmail.com. I want to thank you for listening, and if you like what you heard, please share it with a friend. Until next time.